Uh, so would you please welcome Elisa Childers. Let's have her come on up and... Uh, I don't know if these... Uh, I need a little more height on my chair. <laughs> All right, so it's good to have you here Thank with us. You. Thank you for coming out. Well, it's been so great to be with you all. You have a, such a top-notch team here, so. Thank you. Y'all are very blessed. We are blessed. I'm the from team, the South, so I say y'all. Y'all, okay, good, so, good. Yeah, the team that me. God has put here, really, really, yeah, yeah. no, we really are blessed and, and excited to have it. You guys know Adam uh, Parsons, so um, he's one of our pastors on staff, and the way this is gonna work is, I've got a few questions for Elisa, and we have a number that we're gonna be putting up on the screen, and we're gonna be taking questions from you guys. So you guys can ask questions as time goes on. Uh, we are not going to be able to have time to answer all of the questions. Uh, we asked the worship team to kind of cut back their set because these Q&As go so fast all of the time. And there's a lot of really good stuff uh, for us uh, to cover. Now, um, I want to, first of all, start by recommending uh, her, her first book that I read, which was Another Gospel. And it starts off with you in a crisis of faith. And um, I've had a couple of times in my life where I've been through a crisis of faith, and I thought that'd be a good place for us to start. Um, a lot of times people struggle when they have some kind of a crisis, and uh, how do you see that working in the lives compared to, and what God might be doing with that, mm -hmm. and what people should do if they feel a crisis, uh, or start to go through a crisis? Yeah, well, my story goes back uh, probably about 10 years is when this happened, 10 years ago now. I loved Jesus my whole life. You know, grew up in a, you know, Calvary Chapel was my roots. My dad found the Lord at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. My parents met and got married at Calvary Chapel. Always grew up with a really solid biblical foundation and truly loved Jesus with all my heart for my whole life. Never really had a, uh, any doubt intellectually about what I believed. I just knew it was true and nobody could convince me otherwise. And so it really wasn't until I was an adult, married with a new baby, that my husband and I started attending a church in the heart of Middle Tennessee in the Bible Belt. And it was actually a pastor who introduced all of these skeptical claims against these really precious beliefs that I had held about God, Jesus, and the Bible. And so uh, my faith crisis was a result of that experience where I really, I think I walked up to the edge of agnosticism. But I cried out to God and I just said, God, there has to be somebody who knows the answers to these claims and to these questions. And so that led me on an intellectual journey for the first time in my life and uh, really discovered that a lot of, you know, the claims that this pastor was making could be answered and that there was a lot of really good reasons to believe that Christianity is true. So I think to answer your question, if somebody finds themselves in a faith crisis, especially in today's climate where we have social media, there's so much information available, uh, just don't, you know, don't necessarily listen uh, to the first thing you hear. You know, if you hear a skeptical claim, just know that there are people who have all that same information and they've come to a different conclusion and the responsible thing is to continue searching, continue going through the arguments and the counter arguments because everything sounds really good when the first person says it, but then there's an answer and then that person sounds really good and then there's another, I think there's a proverb like mm -hmm. that somewhere in the Bible, but um, yeah, but just, you know, do the hard work would be my, my advice. Yeah, and I remember in, I don't know which book it was in that you said this, but you said that disbelief is one thing mm -hmm. and having a struggle of doubt is part of what happens inside of Christianity. Yeah. That at some level or another, you're going to have some kind of a doubt that arises and that can end up being a positive thing because you search those things true. 
and you find evidence for what you believe and it's no longer what my pastor believes, but it's now what I believe. That's right. And I, yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of Christians think that faith and doubt are opposites. That if somehow you question something that was taught to you, or if you have a doubt about some kind of a theological belief, that somehow you have a weak faith, but I actually think it's, that's not true at all. I think doubt is a very natural part of faith. You, you actually have to have faith to doubt something you believe because you're doubting something you have faith in. And it's really, that's not a sin, and, and that's where the unbelief comes in. Really, the opposite of faith is unbelief. And so um, I, I think that doubting can be a very healthy part of Christian growth and maturity. Yeah, I was sharing with you beforehand that I had a crisis of faith when I found a variant in the King James Bible. And I went to my pastor, showed him the variant and asked him what's up. And it was a real variant between Kings and Chronicles. And um, he said, well, this is the same account. Go read it. And I went back and I read it and it, 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 it wasn't, he said, it's not the same account. It was the same account. But what, and that caused a crisis in my faith because then what do I do? Is the word of God trustworthy? Is it not? But that led me to dive into, you know, textual criticism, how we got the Bible. That, as I say often in my messages, it doesn't float down from heaven with a ribbon on it into our laps. Oh, the word of God. But that he gave it to us through very real people. So that helped me in the depths of, of um, just going through that doubt helped me to be more solidified. And I love how that happened to you through oh, this. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, yeah. Was, it was a very difficult time in my life, really the darkest time in my life, I think. Why don't you give us um, some of your background? Well, yeah, so my dad was one of those hippies that got saved at <laughs> Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa in the late 60s, early 70s as a part of the Jesus movement. And uh, so he and my mom met, got married at Calvary Chapel. I was dedicated by Chuck Smith at a year old at the, the Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa. So that, you know, Calvary Chapel's always been my roots. But, you know, growing up, um, my parents really gave me a genuine Christianity. They modeled the real thing for me. And I think that that was such a huge part of when I was in my faith crisis and I would see some of my friends who were in the same class that I was in and they were walking away from some version of Christianity that I didn't recognize. Um, many of them thought Christians were hypocrites or that, you know, that Christians, uh, some of the things Christianity teaches is toxic or immoral or something like that. And, you know, I know that my parents really modeled what it looks like to repent, to, you know, when you mess up to, to repent to us and in front of us and modeling that. And also they did a lot of ministry with homeless people and uh, it was just active ministry. It was a part of our lives every day and I think that gave me such a solid foundation. But I was really that kid myself. You know, I, growing up, it wasn't just my parents' faith. I really had my own faith. And uh, I, I was completely sold out for Jesus. I was the kid in youth group that you would have not ever dreamed would have a crisis of faith. You would have been like, let's worry about Johnny over here, but Elisa's gonna be fine. And I would have thought that as well. So I, did, I didn't see it coming. Yeah. Well, we wanna talk some about progressive Christianity. Um, we want your questions as we get to that portion of it. You can really ask anything that you wanna ask as long as it pertains to, you know, the Bible and scripture and spiritual things. And uh, we'll reserve the right to pass on a question if we want to. If Adam tries to sneak something in. We'll, we'll take care of that. But let's, um, let's start with um, progressive. It's, um, it's a positive word, yeah. right? We want to progress. Seems like it, yeah. Yeah, we, yeah. we don't, <laughs> don't want to go backwards in life. We want to move forward. We want right. to progress. We want to be progressing. Right. And I was um, in a conversation today on Twitter with uh, a progressive Christian who kept going back to love, which is kind of what they do. They're going back to, to love and it's trying to get away from the tenets of Scripture to it. Um, but he just kept saying that, you know, we're, we're the ones progressing. Mm -hmm. So you want to talk about how that could end up being 
something negative when it's such a positive word? Right. Well, <laughs> progressive Christianity is sort of my area of interest and study because the church where my faith crisis was facilitated went on to rebrand itself as a progressive Christian community. And then I understood what happened to me at that point, that this was really a situation in which the pastor had converted to this progressive Christianity and was trying to convert others uh, to that belief as well. And so progressive Christianity is notoriously difficult to define, and you're right. You think of the word progress and progressive, and it sounds good, but if you really think about it, the word progress is actually neutral. It just means you're progressing in a certain direction. You're going in a certain direction. I can progress toward falling off the stage and breaking my <laughs> nose. Um, that would not be a good kind of progress. And so um, the best way that I can define it is that it's really a reaction against more conservative Christianity or evangelical Christianity. So most progressive Christians are ex-evangelicals. They grew up in the evangelical church and they've now rejected those beliefs. And so it's really the view that Christianity itself is progressing. So whereas you and I might look at the earliest followers of Jesus, those who were the eyewitnesses of his life, death, and resurrection, as having the highest authority to really tell us what Christianity is, in the mind of the progressive Christian, those people that were the earliest Christians were really more like representing Christianity in its infancy, like a baby that's learning to crawl before it walks. And so there's this radically different approach to the faith. And so in the mind of the progressive Christian, you know, we've progressed beyond some of these more archaic doctrines, things like hell or the idea that humans are inherently sinful or that that sin would separate them from God or that they would need the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And so you're right, some, a lot of times they'll bring it back to the concept of love, but one thing that we have to be aware of is that the progressive Christian does not define love biblically. Right, biblically, love is an attribute of God. It flows from his nature and his character. Paul fleshes that out for us in 1 Corinthians 13. Of course, love is patient, love is kind. We all love that stuff, but he goes on to say that love cannot rejoice in wrongdoing, mm -hmm. and love rejoices in the truth. But the progressive Christian is not defining love that way. They're defining it more along with culture, which would say love is more of an affirmation and acceptance and even celebration of however anybody else wants to behave like or believe or, or live out. And of course, we know from the biblical definition that's actually the opposite. There are some things that love requires us to not rejoice in and to actually oppose. Yeah, he kept coming back to we're the ones who love and are inclusive. So that's where he kept going back to. Yeah. And I'm wanting to talk about the resurrection and you know, the tenets of the faith, and, um, but it kept going back to that. Uh, so um, along those lines, and this is kind of where that conversation started with him on Twitter, is I was challenging whether progressive Christianity is Christianity. So is progressive Christianity Christianity? And when I'm talking to someone who says, I'm a Christian, are, if they're, are they on the journey? Where do we, how do we deal with that? So it's a little bit of a, of a difficult situation, right? Because right. you don't judge people. Right. So. Right, so that's a great question. And there's actually a reason I call my book Another Gospel. <laughs> because, <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a, you know, the publisher was like, how about we put a question mark on the end? And I'm like, that's okay. We can explore that question in the book. But the conclusion of the book is that in, in my estimation, through all my study and my experience with progressive Christianity, it's not Christianity. It's mm. not the same faith. It doesn't teach the same God. It's not the same Jesus. It's not a Jesus who can save you. Now, with that said, certainly not everyone who might use the term progressive Christian 
uh, has gone that far down the, the trail. So when I'm analyzing the movement, I'm not talking about your friends and neighbors that might attend a church that leans a little progressive and they're somewhere on the spectrum. I'm analyzing the ideas of the thought leaders of the movement, the people writing the books, doing the conferences, promoting these ideas, and what they are promoting uh, nearly unanimously is a, a, an absolutely irrefutably false gospel that takes away any sort of salvation that you might, might be available to you through the blood of Jesus because that's really viewed as a toxic doctrine mm. in progressive Christianity. Yeah, so the extreme where they would go would be a denial of the resurrection, a denial of, of the penal substitutionary work of Christ on the cross, which is his sacrificial death for us. Yeah. Um, Interestingly, though, yeah. uh, the resurrection, progressives seem to be a little split on. Okay. So you might find a few progressive Christian, even thought leaders, who might say, well, I affirm that Jesus was resurrected. But you always wanna ask a few more questions because they might be talking about a spiritual resurrection or they might be talking about some sort of, um, you know, a, a, a amalgamation of the two, a little bit physical, a little bit spiritual. Um, but many do deny the resurrection. Some just don't really take a position on it. Uh, but you're right, almost unanimously, there's a denial of the penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus, a mm. denial of a place of punishment called hell. So it's very universalistic in that sense. And and I would think, is that, is that the place you would say is the break is? So we as Christians believe that Jesus died on the cross and we died with him. In the life that we now live, we live in Christ. So they believe that that's an example of Jesus, how we're supposed to respond to people who are hurting us. So they don't believe it's, that's right, they don't yeah. believe it's a substitutionary work. Right. So then they're not genuinely, at that point, that person's not genuinely saved if they're not trusting right in the work of Christ on the cross. That's right, that's, that's well put. So in the mind of the progressive Christian, the idea that God the Father would require the blood sacrifice of his only son implicates God's moral character that would turn him into like a pagan deity that required a blood sacrifice. And so that you'll often hear the term cosmic child abuse in reference to that view of the atonement. So the general view of what happened on the cross in progressive Christianity is that Jesus was submitting to uh, humanity wanting to kill him in order to show us what forgiveness looks like. So really like an, a moral example for us to follow. And that in, in doing that showed us a way forward, showed us a better way of how to respond to people who uh, you know, might be hateful toward us or want to harm us in some way. Yeah, and, and I've, the, the people that I know that have gone progressive, which is one of the reasons I've started talking about it so much in the last years, because I know people have gone down that road, um, a lot of times it's the affirming aspect, affirming homosexuality That's right, yeah. or hell. So these things that, that seem unfair to them. And so rather than looking at what does the scripture really say about it, and how does it, then they, they start to go to that denial and they find a, a place inside of some progressive movement that makes them feel better. And, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I would say if there, you know, I, I mentioned it's hard to define because it is very fluid. There's a lot of beliefs that fall under the umbrella of progressive Christianity, but if we were to say what are the core tenets, you know, it would be a denial of substitutionary atonement, a denial of a place of punishment called hell, and an affirmation of uh, the current radical gender theory and homosexuality, LGBTQ activism, and, and that sort of thing would, would be, you, you would have to affirm those things to be uh, accepted in the progressive Christian circles, yeah. Yeah, and I liked, we were talking a little bit earlier about um, how there's different levels of punishment in hell. So we were talking about the general teaching of hell. It seems like people are afraid to talk about hell in a way that could be more just and how God would be dealing with people individually because they're afraid that you're going to give people a 
a, a right to say, well, then I don't mind going to hell, which is just crazy when you're talking about a place of punishment, eternal separation away from God. Mm -hmm. um, but there, in, instead of being driven away by those things, we can dive more into what is the biblical aspect? What does the Bible really say about this? And I think even focusing on heaven as well, because a lot of progressive Christians sort of rail against the idea that God would separate people from himself and not be all inclusive. But the question is, if somebody doesn't like mm. God's nature and character here on earth, where he's veiled a little bit, where we see through a glass darkly, what would make us think that they would want to be in his presence for all eternity when his glory is fully revealed. I think it was C.S. Lewis who mentioned, you know, for people who think they want to go to heaven because of whatever idea they think heaven is, if it's just eternal pleasure or something like this, and they don't realize it's the fully realized glory of God, then even the blades of grass would feel like razor blades. And yeah. so, uh, you know, I, that's a good question to explore too with the progress. Like, what do you think heaven is? Is it, do you think it's just like going to the beach every day? Or, <laughs> you know, this is right. like, I don't think you like it there actually. Right, right. I'm golfing every day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Adam, you got a question for us? Yeah, you, you had mentioned, Elisa, that some progressives will believe in the resurrection, others will reject a belief in the resurrection, so it's kind of a mixed bag. So for those who believe in the resurrection but are progressive, the question is how do progressives of that ilk read the Bible versus how we, when we say, okay, mm. Jesus rose from the dead and that's an essential, how would we read, how, how would they read, how does that differ? Yeah, that's a great question. So in the mind of the progressive Christian, really all doctrines are on the same level. So whereas I think historically we can make a case for this going all the way back to some of the earliest creedal material we have recorded for us in our New Testament, there are some beliefs that are more important than others. Paul talks about this when he presents the creed in 1 Corinthians 15. He says this is of utmost importance. So what he was about to say, that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was resurrected on the third day, these are of utmost importance. But the progressive Christian, first of all, isn't going to read Paul authoritatively. So uh, the, the, the general approach to the Bible that progressive Christianity has is that rather than the Bible being written by people who God used to breathe out his word, that's, that's in you know, that Second Timothy verse, the, all scripture is inspired by God, that comes from one Greek word, thaostanus. I don't know if I pronounced it right because I'm not a Greek scholar, but it's literally translated to breathed out by God. And so, of course, we see their, their personalities reflected, we see their cultural contexts, we see their humanity reflected, but the words on the page are God's words breathed out, therefore they're authoritative. It's as if God said, it, it, not as if, it's that God said that himself. Whereas the progressive Christian is going to look at somebody like Paul or Moses or whoever you know wrote different books of the Bible and they're gonna say well these were just people trying to figure God out in their times and places and so we can actually look at what they had to say about God and find a lot of value in it we can learn from it God might use it to inspire us in some way but it's not authoritative for us as Christians so um, just to put this in really stark terms there was a progressive church in Nashville that actually went viral a couple of years ago because they produced a graphic meme on social media that said the Bible is not God's word. And they were kind of surprised that it was controversial because that's just what they teach in progressive Christianity. So God's word, quote unquote, in progressive Christianity is just more like something God uses. It could be a sermon, it could be another person, it could be a flower, it could be all sorts of things that God would use to inspire you in your faith or in your walk or something like that. So they don't read the Bible authoritatively and there aren't any beliefs 
uh, at least officially, like I mentioned the core tenets a minute ago, but at least officially, as far as those theological beliefs, that would be non-negotiables. Everything's negotiable. Great. Um, cover this real quick. Um, we uh, we had attended a funeral a while ago of a friend of ours, and a couple of people that went up to talk at the funeral talked about deconstruction. So I think that's a main part of um, of progressive Christianity. So do you want to kind of address what that is and? Yeah, it's open a big can of worms right now. So, um, so <laughs> in a couple have you all heard that word deconstruction in the context of faith? So I've just turned in a, in a manuscript on a book on deconstruction. So this is the, the pond I've been swimming in for the last <laughs> year. Um, so if you think of progressive Christianity as a destination, think of deconstruction as a, as a pathway or a vehicle. So when someone is in deconstruction, they can land in all sorts of different places. They can land in progressive Christianity, they can land in the new age, they can land in atheism, they can land in a diff entirely different religion like Buddhism. So deconstruction is primarily a vehicle out of conservative Christianity or evangelical Christianity. Um, the reason I said it's a can of worms is because a lot of Christians use the word deconstruction and what they really mean is going through a time of doubt or engaging the hard questions of faith. I think that's great. We should all do that. We should always be pressing hard on our beliefs, making sure that what we believe reflects reality, making sure that what we believe lines up with God's word, right? We always wanna do that. We shouldn't shy away from any questions. Um, but I think a lot of Christians are wrongly calling that deconstruction because deconstruction, and I'll try to do this very succinctly and quickly, it's, it's, a, it's a very postmodern concept for two reasons. Number one is its philosophical roots, and number two is the dominant expression of deconstruction, which is largely happening on social media. So its philosophical roots is postmodernism. It comes uh, from who is referred to as the father of deconstruction. This is a French philosopher named Jacques Derrida. Now, Jacques Derrida applied deconstruction to words, to text. He didn't believe that the author's intent had any more authority on what the words meant than the, uh, the hearer's interpretation. Now, doesn't that kind of sound familiar these days? Um, but it was people like John Caputo who applied the idea of deconstruction to religion. So it's very suspicious of narratives. Uh, any kind of truth claim that's being made is seen as a power grab because it's built on the idea that truth is not fixed, it's not objective, it can't be fully known. And so anybody claiming to know what the truth might be, especially when it comes to morality and religion, well, they must only be saying that to prop up some institution of oppression or power. And so that's why when Christians come around saying, hey, hell is a real place, it exists. Jesus died on the cross for the sins, hey, you're a sinner. In the mind of the, the postmodern deconstruction movement, well, what, that's toxic because you're just trying to control me. You're just trying to preserve power. And so uh, there's a, it's a heavy skepticism. And so I would say that, just all of that to say that deconstruction is really an explosion that can land in all sorts of different places, but it all has the same starting point, and that's evangelical Christianity, however that's defined in the mind of the, the deconstructionist. And that's the dominant expression on social media. It's highly skeptical, very negative, very mocking, um, and, and just these, it, it's, it's not assessing beliefs based on what's true or false, but what one individual deems to be toxic or healthy. And of course, as we know, we can't determine what's toxic or healthy unless we know what's true first. And so that's, that's sort of my little 
trying to get the worms back in the can, but there good. we go. <laughs> okay, good. Um, so the boogeyman is evangelical Christianity. Right. And so you're deconstructing from all of those tenets of evangelical Christianity. I have bad experiences mm -hmm. in evangelical Christianity. There are times that I wanted to back away from it and mm -hmm. kind of go, I, you know, that's not, that's not what, what I'm about. So um, do you, do you see as they're deconstructing from that, so if they are there, so you see things within evangelical Christianity that probably need to be addressed. Yeah, sure. That have led to some of this. Sure. Yeah, there, the, and this is what we have to understand. The word evangelical, I don't know if anybody's ever fully properly defined what that word means. There's a book by Carl Truman that says, you know, there is no such thing as evangelical because it's sort of this catch-all term. So for some people, it means having a heavy emphasis in biblical authority. For other people, it means those people that stormed the, cap the Capitol, right? So it has yeah. this spectrum of all of these different things. And so I would say if there's anything truly unhealthy or incorrect or wrong with any group, whether it's evangelical or a denomination or whatever, let's address that, let's address abuses, let's deal with those things biblically. But the problem is that, you're right by saying boogeyman, because um, that's not what's happening in deconstruction. They're not simply just recognizing, oh, hey, this group became really hyper-political and lost sight of the gospel. Let's get the focus back on the gospel. That's not what's happening in deconstruction. What's happening is, oh, this group got real political. They're all hypocrites. I'm rejecting the whole thing. Hell is gone. Substitutionary atonement is gone. It's all because the Bible, and it really comes back to this postmodern idea that truth claims are power grabs. Once you're in that mindset, it's like the switch gets flipped, and then any kind of claim that's made that's meant to say this is what's true for everyone, you are immediately seen as a toxic and harmful person. And so you, you've lost your, your voice into their life, essentially. Yeah, do you have another question? Yeah, Adam? this is a, it's a good, deep, multifaceted did they Did they give their names question. with the questions, by the way? This one, yes. Yes, okay. Uh, along the lines of deconstruction, Michaela writes, one of my best friends recently walked away from her faith entirely, which breaks my heart. She grew up in evangelical churches alongside me, though her parents were liberal and mine conservative, so I feel she inherently had a polarizing pull in theology and political belief. She went to college and deconstructed her faith and became a progressive Christian. Now she has completely walked away from the faith entirely and is dabbling in the occult. Mm. It's heart-wrenching to watch, and I still pray for her and love her dearly. When I ask what led her away, she always cites church abuse, along with the toxicity of purity culture and the fact that the Bible permits slavery, but I don't really understand these points. Mm. Can you elaborate further and help me to respond to her? Yeah. Well, uh, let me just hit on kind of two of those big points there, the toxicity of purity culture, and maybe we'll touch on slavery in the time we have left. I don't know yeah. how much time we have. Um, so, so uh, but, uh, but let me swing out to the bigger picture here. What this is showing is that there are different things that have come up for this friend that um, are great places for whoever, Michaela, I think was the name. Michaela, a great place for you to start when maybe start researching slavery and the Bible. Become really educated for yourself on the Hebrew, in fact, go, you know, to the Old Testament, the, the institution that Yahweh instituted with Israel, which is translated in some English Bibles as slavery, but one way you could help your friend is maybe help her understand that in America, the word slavery has a very specific 
specific meaning and connotation. We immediately think of the antebellum South and the forced labor kidnapping of African Americans that happened in our country. Well, when the Bible uh, is translated from the Hebrew word ezer uh, into slave, in fact, the, actually the ESV committee is meeting and constantly debating should we change that word to servant because the institution that Yahweh put in place was actually a way for people to work their, themselves up and out of poverty. So back then, it's not like you could just go to Starbucks, get a job, and get an apartment. Families sort of lived and died together. If your crops failed, you could starve to death and die. So you might take a loan from one of your neighbors, and then what would happen is if you owe your neighbor a debt, you could repay that debt by moving in to their home, you know, their, their homestead, and working off that debt in their home. Now, that would sometimes not be a great situation. You might have to split up the family, go to different places. It certainly wasn't a perfect system, but it was a way that God was working with people so that they wouldn't starve to death. And then there, was, there were uh, protections for those servants, those as theirs, and after seven years, they were to be released with uh, all debts paid, with a generous gift of flocks and grain and wine. So you can see right off the bat how that's radically different than what we think about as slavery. In fact, Paul directly addresses slave traders as people who will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And kidnapping a human being in the Old Testament was punishable by death. So it was actually the Bible that led abolitionists to work so hard to abolish the kind of slavery that was happening in the West. So uh, that's just a little snippet of that, but see if you just have some of that information, maybe uh, read some, some books on that, listen to some lectures, and equip yourself to have those conversations, that can be great. Now, purity culture, that's, that's a tough one. I grew up in purity culture, which is really a reference to the time in the church when there was such a heavy focus on abstinence and you know they did the purity rings and the purity balls and um, uh, there were some abuses in purity culture and I say acknowledge whatever was abusive about it say hey if you went to a church where they told you that you know they they squeezed the toothpaste out of the tube and said you can't get the toothpaste back in the tube and you're spoiled if you've blown it sexually and you know that's not biblical uh, in, in the mind of, of Christ and what the Bible teaches is that with repentance, there's full and free forgiveness for every sin, including sexual sin. And so that, you know, maybe a well-meaning youth pastor did something like that. There could have been even darker abuses that need to be addressed, acknowledged, and maybe repented of in some cases. But the abuse of a doctrine doesn't make the doctrine itself abusive, meaning that it is God's best for us to wait until we're married to have sex. And there's all sorts of reasons for that but making an apologetic for the beauty of God's design. And I'll stop talking because I just, uh. that was a really big question <laughs> though. I didn't want to leave anything hanging. Well, but. let's, um, coming back to slavery for a moment. Um, antebellum slavery was one of the worst forms of slavery that this world has ever seen. And slavery has been around since the beginning. Still of, is. Yeah, yeah, and still yeah. is, still is. We talked about, we talked uh, about the Congo, what's going on there mm -hmm. and the cobalt mines and the slavery that's there. Um, but uh, you, you referenced the passage that says, if anybody's caught kidnapping or is caught with someone who is kidnapped, that person shall be put to death. So that's in the scripture. So it mm -hmm. doesn't allow for an antebellum kind of a slavery right. at all. It is something that is entirely different. If you guys are interested more on that and maybe some of the other things like war in the Old Testament or annihilation in the Old Testament, Paul Copan's book, A Moral Monster, is a great book to get. 
it's a little bit of a heavy read, but it's not too bad. And the funny thing is that for him, that's a pop book. You it's know? very, yeah. And he just came <laughs> out with a new one called His God of Indictive Bully. So you can get those and yeah. put them together for some light reading. But yeah, well, yeah. And, and, I, and, I, and I read all the way through it. And I'll tell you, I, I reread like three quarters of the way through it again. Because by the time I, I got through it, it was like, gosh, I don't know that I've got all of this stuff here. But um, okay. it's some great stuff. And that is a great resource. Paul Copan uh, is God a Moral Monster. And what was the name of his new book? Is God a Vindictive Bully. Is God a Vindictive Bully. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk about, um, we talked a little bit about the authority of Scripture. Um, you, you brought up uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, 17. Um, you you want to kind of go maybe talk a little bit more about that as it's supposed to be within the the genuine Christian life. Yeah. How is, what is the authority of God's word and even how that passage talks about the completeness of it all? Yeah, we, we live in a very anti-authority culture. It's, uh, it was been shocking to me doing all this research into deconstruction, how little the insight and wisdom of the past is valued in the deconstruction movement. It's as if we've just woken up here in, in 2023 for the first time and realized that everybody who lived before us was a complete moron, you know, and it's, it's really kind of shocking to see, but that's because of this influence of postmodernism, which really rejects all, all of these sort of grand narratives and the wisdom from the past. And so uh, biblical authority is going to be on the chopping block in not just in progressive Christianity, but in culture in general. It's viewed as a very odd way to live, to, to view a book as authoritative. And then people will say, well, Christians just believe that the Bible is God's word because the Bible says so, which is not exactly, that's not actually true at all because I wouldn't believe a piece of paper is the word of God just because it says so. There's reasons we believe that. And one of those reasons for me is Jesus, right? If we just you know put authority of scripture aside for a moment and just view the gospels as historical documents that uh, that are a pretty reliable uh, record of Jesus' life. And we have Jesus referring to the entire Old Testament as the word of God over and over and over again. It's even how he battled temptation in the wilderness. He appealed to the authority of scripture by saying it is written, it is written. So as Jesus followers, that's what we are to do is, is approach scripture the way Jesus did. But I think there are some misunderstandings about what we mean when we say biblical authority. Biblical authority doesn't mean you close your eyes and pick out a random verse in the Old Testament and do what it says, right? We have to read it in its context. We have to know who was this particular book being written to, what was their cultural context, what was the history, what was the point, how did they interpret it? You know, it's not gonna mean something different to us than it meant to them, and then we apply. But I think a lot of people just skip right to applying before they really realize what the interpretation of the verse is. But when interpreted properly, the Bible is our authority. It's God's revealed word to us. And so, uh, and it's something that's without error. It's inspired by God. And these are, I think, beautiful doctrines. And this is why I think this is so relevant for our culture today. Culture will tell us that you have to check Twitter every five minutes to find out what you're supposed to think about any given topic. And if you think something that's about six minutes out of date, you're gonna get canceled. You could actually lose your job. You could have the woke mob coming for you. But here's the beauty, just get off that hamster wheel and stand on the foundation of God's word, which does not change ever. Even though culture is constantly changing, and as we've all seen very rapidly, especially in the past decade or so, isn't it so refreshing to know that you can stand on the word of God that never changes. It's been tested throughout millennia. People have lived and died by it. 
And I just, I just want to live my life that way rather than this constant stress of trying to figure out what I'm supposed to believe today. And this isn't the first generation that has attacked the scriptures either. No. It's, it's stood up against attack after attack after attack. And when you look at what the scriptures say, Jesus commended the faithful church because they kept the word. Jesus said, more blessed are you than Mary if you hear the word of God and keep it. There's just so many promises about taking God's word in. Um, being part of Calvary Chapel, I've personally been accused of, and Calvary Chapel is accused of, worshiping the Bible. So you did address Bibliolatry. that. Bibliolatry. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, Bibliolatry. Yeah. 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 All right. You got another question, Adam? Yeah, I have, I have one thing to share when you were talking about being canceled. Uh, we actually had some Google ads that said an evening with Elisa Childers that were canceled because they <laughs> contain sensitive content. Just very interesting. Yeah. But I'm still here. That's right. <laughs> That's right. So glad to have you. Uh, along those lines. Sensitive content. <laughs> a parent writes this. I have prayed that the Holy Spirit will give my teenagers experiential encounters that magnify his glory. How can I talk to them about seeing him even without some overwhelming emotional encounter and prepare them for when God seems quiet? This is so such a relevant question for me right now because my kids are 14 and 11. And I think that, you know, I'm always trying to self-analyze and due to my faith crisis that I had 10 years ago, I have really sort of over the past 10 years focused really more on the intellectual and don't worry about the emotions, just believe what's true and it's refreshing to know that you're saved, you're in Christ, whether you feel it or not, whether you have a mountaintop experience or not. But I have found myself kind of observing my kids sort of not really knowing how to relate with God relationally. And so uh, the advice that I've given to them is, you know, when you pray, you're not just talking to a brick wall. You're not just like saying things out into the ether or whatever it is. Pray, and then if the Lord brings somebody to your heart, or ask the Lord, bring somebody to my mind that I can pray for. And, and he'll do that, and then you start praying for that person, and then the, he might bring something else into your mind to pray about, or maybe somebody that he wants you to minister to in some way, and that will just press upon your heart. And so I think that the thing, here's what makes me sad. I've met with a lot of young people who say, I, I'm really wavering in my faith because I can't feel God anymore. All my friends say God talks to them all the time and I don't ever feel anything in my heart. And I, I try to reassure them and say, look, here's the truth. God has spoken to you in his word. And even, I'm telling you the truth, like I'm, I come from charismatic background and all this, but if I never heard God, another word, fresh word from God again, I have enough for the rest of my life in the Bible, 10 times over. And so maybe training our kids to really be steeped in the word of God because that is the primary way he has revealed himself to us. And so, and I know Calvary Chapel is such a, a Bible-based um, background, that's why I'm so thrilled that's my roots. Because I think just telling kids, look, read the Bible, some days you're gonna feel it, some days you're not, it's okay. You're not required to feel something to be saved. Right? It's trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So I asked my, my son that. He's like, am I a Christian? Because I don't feel it all the time. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ for your salvation? Yes, then you're a Christian. It's okay if you don't feel it today. Be obedient. Walk a quiet life of obedience and faithfulness to Christ. And that's enough for me. But uh, also keeping room for that, you know, leading and guiding of the Holy Spirit in those ways. So it's, it's a tough balance sometimes, I think. Your, um, your book, Another Gospel. So the title takes us right to Galatians 1. Mm -hmm. And so was that, you wanna just explain that contrast a little bit of what you were thinking as you picked that name? 
Yeah, so, you know, of course, Paul says, if anyone comes to you preaching another gospel, when, when uh, translation says, or a different gospel than what we preach to you, let him be accursed. And that's such a powerful verse because Jude talks about the fact that there is one faith, right? There's not six different versions of Christianity that have been passed down to us. Now, there certainly are differences of opinion in the one church about second-tier doctrines, third-tier doctrines, but remember, going back to Paul, there are doctrines that are of utmost importance. These are things we can't agree to disagree about. And so the church is unified around those beliefs, right? And you know, yeah, we might disagree with the Presbyterians about how to baptize, we might disagree with the Baptists about this or that, about you know, the khakis and the polos, it's like a real, I go to a Baptist church now, it's like khakis and polos are like the uniform, I don't know where, like who started that, but you know, but there's, but there's gonna be disagreement even over uh, gifts of the spirit or women in ministry or maybe the age of the earth or things like this and things that are maybe very important. I think there are second tier doctrines that are incredibly important. Um, that could potentially lead someone into grave error if they believe wrongly about those things. But to keep the main thing the main thing. So if, there, if somebody comes along and teaches you a different Christianity than the fact that you're a sinner who needs to be saved by the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross, he's coming again to judge the living and the dead and there will be an eternal destination of heaven or hell for every person. I mean, at its most bare bones, any, any version of the gospel that denies those points is not Christianity and it's not a saving faith. And so I think um, that's why Paul was so adamant about that, yeah. that, that let him be accursed if they teach something different than that. Yeah, and I think, you know, when progressive Christianity as well, it, it is the whole sinner aspect. They're not gonna believe, they're gonna not believe you're a sinner that needs to be saved. That's right, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so, they're not gonna deny that people do sin sometimes. Obviously, you can't read history and deny that there's human evil. But they deny that you're inherently sinful and that that sin would separate you from God. Yeah, and then we come back to the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus died for our sins according to the gospel, was buried and rose from the dead yeah. according to the gospel. Now they're denying the gospel. It really is another gospel. That's right. Because they're denying the gospel. Um, before we run out of time, we'll, get, we'll take a, a couple more questions. But I do wanna touch on um, live your own truth and other lies. So I want to tell you what I really loved about this book. I loved your vulnerability. You tell a lot of things that a lot of people would want to cover up and you're used to- Say a lot of things in there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just, you know, you're just so used to, a lot of times pastors will be the, the hero over their own stories. You know, the sort of stories where, and then I told them this and then I did them that and then they walked away in shame, you know? Right. But um, when I was, um, I, en I endeavor a lot to be like Charles Swindoll because when I was younger, I loved him, but I loved that he would often say, to my shame, I did this, mm. you know, and, and I love that vulnerability in here and how you bounced off that into the things that you talked about. Is there anything out of this that you would like to touch on tonight mm. that really the, the Lord would share, have you share? Yeah, so it's, it's interesting because I do try to be, I thank you for, for noticing that because I do try to be very vulnerable because I am very well aware when I preach about the fact that we're sinners that I, I mean, I, I think I wrote in another gospel, if the title of worst of sinners wasn't already taken by Paul, I would, I would grab up that title <laughs> because um, I, 
I know my own struggles. I know how I have limped at times. And you know that footprints in the sand thing where it yeah. says, here's, this is, that's when I carried you. And then there's like these track marks <laughs> of where he's like, this is where I dragged you. You know, I feel like, like that's a lot of my life too. Um, so I'm very well aware of the fact that I am a sinner and I've struggled with things in my life quite a bit. And I think that's why I'm so grateful for the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross because I know, I knew when, when I was in faith crisis, I knew that if there wasn't forgiveness, a mechanism for atonement for my sins, I was doomed. I knew that. I knew that I was doomed if Jesus didn't die on the cross for my sins. And so um, that's something that's just been such a key point for me. But I guess what I would, uh, the difference really between the two is another gospel is really my journey of my faith crisis, what that looked like, what my questions were. And then Live Your Truth and Other Lies is a broader look at the cultural lies that really are all about what we believe about ourselves, right? You're perfect just as you are. God just wants you to be happy. That YOLO hashtag, you only live once. And ultimately live your truth. So the idea in culture is that you need to identify your deepest desires and live those out and that's what it means to be authentic um, but as we know from scripture is that your deepest desires are often going to be in conflict with what is actually good and if you live those out not only are they going to destroy you but they're going to destroy other people so we try to show a much more beautiful path forward by living according to the bible and uh, so that's kind of the, the live your truth and other lies nice i um i do a, a q a on wednesdays and saturdays an hour long youtube and and, uh, and facebook uh, today I had a girl named Maria that said, I gave my life to the Lord on New Year's, I think Eve it was. And uh, she said, and I've done some pretty horrible things. Is God gonna accept me? And I shared a little bit with her, but I thought it might be a blessing to her if you were to share a little bit with her on that. Brand new Christian oh, who just feels beautiful. like I've done some, some pretty horrible things and I just don't feel like God's accepting me. Well, the good news about the way salvation works is that Every sin is the same in the sense that it condemns us all to hell. So from the smallest white lie to murder to whatever you can think of or, or imagine, uh, all of those are the same in that we fall short of the glory of God, all of us do. And every single one of those is covered by Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. And I promise you that there are Christians today who have done way worse things than you've ever even thought of doing. So move past that. Now, of course, different sins have different consequences in reality, in the way that they affect us in our lives. That certainly is true. Um, and so some of us are walking out the consequences of some of our, our sins, and God is using, but this is the beauty, and this is the beauty for you, whoever was asking that question, is that God, when you're in Christ, he works all things together for good for you. So even the consequences of your past sin, he's working for your sanctification, which means making you more like him every day. And just keep that tender heart to him. It's not, it's not gonna all happen overnight, but as he shows you light, as he convicts you of something, work on that thing, respond to the light he gives you, and then he'll give you more light. And, and that's the, the path we're all on as Christians. And we'll be on that path until we are like him face to face and seeing him where there will be no more tears, no more crying, no more pain, no more sin. And that's the great promise and hope that we have as Christians. Mm. And I, I, I think that hopefully this has been some good hope for you guys if you are experiencing it all. What do, what do, you, what do they do if they run into someone? So there are a couple of churches here in town. One of them is pretty big. Just a couple. But, well, yeah. There's a list of, of uh, progressive churches in Tucson that yeah, people can yeah. look up. 
Um, but um, one of them is a pretty big church. And um, what do they do if they have family member or friend? How do they approach mm. effectively trying to to minister to them? Yeah, well, this is a tough question because, you know, back to the deconstruction thing, when people are in a pro progressive Christian church, they may not know it. So if they're receptive to truth, if they want to know the truth, but maybe they just don't see it, that's gonna be a very different approach than the kind of the sold out, hardcore progressive Christian that hates everything about what you believe, right? So it's gonna require a lot of wisdom. But here's what I, I try to tell people is just keep in mind that if somebody is a really sold out progressive Christian, they've been through deconstruction, which which again, remember the postmodern roots. It's not that they disagree with you. They think you're toxic. They actually think that what you believe is harmful to people. And so with that in mind, I think that you do a little triage. You figure, you know, what is my relationship to this person? Um, do we have an open dialogue going? Or is this just somebody I sort of know? And, and so um, I, I told the ladies this last night. If you have a friend who's in deconstruction, that's a very fragile situation. And I think it's okay to simply try to stay in their life because the impetus for the person in deconstruction to cut off their family and friends who go to conservative churches or evangelical churches is very strong. So if you can just stay in their life, establish the lines of communication, show them love, and listen, live out the beauty of the gospel in front of them. Let them see the peace of Jesus in your life and the spirit of God at work in your life because you know, I spent about a year on the TikTok deconstruction hashtag and it is such a negative, um, depressing place to be. And I really believe that we, are, we do not see the end of this deconstruction thing yet. I think there are seeds of revival being planted. A lot of people are deconstructing and, there, and there's gonna be, a, I pray, uh, a return to Jesus, the real Jesus from that. So don't despair about it. Be the opposite of the stereotype that they think evangelicals are, you know, storming the Capitol with, uh, you know, AR-14, whatever those things are called, you know. Um, <laughs> you know, be the opposite of the stereotype and show them love and then maybe pray that soon a door will open for a conversation where you can start to ask questions about, you know, what is it that, um, maybe what was the thing that was the main thing that made you start going down this road or change your mind and start the discussion there? All right, we're going to close in prayer. Uh, we got to get over to the West Campus. So if you guys jump up now and get in the car, you can get over there and we'll get some more <laughs> questions that are there. But let's pray. Um, Father, thank you so much for the love that you show us. Thank you that we've been able to talk with Elisa here today. We pray that we would take this information that we've gotten about progressive Christianity, what has been liberal Christianity in the past, emergent church, all of these things, and really seek you. We pray for our family and our friends and Lord, we, we admit we don't know what to do, but you do. And we look for the leading and the guiding of the Holy Spirit. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.